pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that you would indeed be at work in your people. Uh, Show us the word that you have for us as it applies to us today. And I pray that you would uh, be at work. You'd be at work glorifying your son, Jesus, showing us the glory of who he is and causing us to rejoice in him. I pray that that would be where you would place all of our hope. Yes, this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is a family tradition in the Krug household, and maybe some of your households, maybe many of your households, uh, to decorate for Christmas. Now, growing up, uh, my mother decorated for Christmas in a way that we just don't, right? She decorates every area of the house for Christmas. In fact, for her, there was a Christmas tree in every room. And I mean every single room. But for our family, uh, we don't do quite that much, but uh, we do go out. We we go to either a Christmas tree farm or we go to a parking lot. We pick out a tree. We look at every tree, inspect all of the different ones to find the one that's just right, cut it down or, or take it over to the car, put it on top, come home. And all the while, listening to Christmas music, uh, we decorate the tree, we, spring, uh, we uh, string up the lights, hang the ornaments. Uh, almost every ornament has a story behind it. I don't know about you guys, and so a lot of times we'll tell the stories to one another, we'll remember the fond memories, and we'll reminisce as we recall joyful stories of past Christmases. That's at least how I envision things to go, right, as, as I look ahead to Christmas. But every year, uh, somehow I'm caught off guard by just how many things can go wrong uh, in decorating. Uh, and probably all of us have experienced that in some level, right? It might be the frustration and the bickering and the tears that can come up when putting up Christmas lights. It might be uh, the special recipe that doesn't turn out right and ends up burnt, having to be redone. It might be uh, the Christmas card that doesn't get written, uh, the perfect gift that's just out of stock and won't arrive until after Christmas or car troubles or sickness that threaten to undo travel plans. Am I the only one? Hopefully I can, okay, well. We, we have our hopes, right, as we go in uh, to the holidays, but they don't always go as planned. And sometimes the reality is that our, our hopes are misplaced. We become disappointed when things don't go our way, and so instead of joy, we have anger. Instead of an overflow of gladness, we find ourselves sulking. And as we've walked through this Advent series, uh, we've considered a number of the promises that God had made to his people about a coming Savior, a promised Messiah. And what God reveals about himself through these promises, we've, we've considered them. And we've contemplated what it meant for the Old Testament saints to place their hope in uh, God as they waited for this promised one and what it means for us today as we look back and we look forward to Christ's second coming. Now, our passage today in Zephaniah uh, that we're looking at, we're looking at actually the last seven verses in the book of Zephaniah. Last week, we looked at the promise that God had made to David, that God would uh, give David the throne, uh, give a throne to David forever. And from that time until we reach this passage in Zephaniah, a lot has happened. 
David's son Solomon uh, was crowned king, and built uh, the temple of God that uh, David so longed to. But then after Solomon's reign, the kingdom was split in two, in the north and the south. The northern uh, kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. And Zephaniah's book was written during the reign of Josiah, king of Judah. And if you're not there, I'd encourage you uh, to open up to the book of Zephaniah, if you can find it. It's okay to look in the table of contents if you need a a page number, or it's in your program uh, when Les read it uh, to us. But the northern kingdom, uh, Israel, had fallen to the Assyrians somewhere right around 80 years earlier, and a prophet of the Lord... Uh, that God had sent uh, Zephaniah, he'd sent to Judah to warn the people of Judah that the day of the Lord, as it's called, it was near. Judgment was coming, judgment had come to Israel, and now it was coming to Judah. If you look at the very beginning of Zephaniah, we, we read in, uh, starting with verse 1, that the, the word of the Lord had come to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, Gedaliah son of Maria, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. And here is our text. Here's the book, the introduction to the book that we're considering for today. Verse two, he says, the Lord says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'll sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble and the, uh, with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Zephaniah is a book of judgment. It's a heavy book of judgment. And the imagery that we see just in these first few verses is that of a reversal of the creation account. God is destroying that which he created in the beginning of Genesis. And and then in Zephaniah 1.4, the Lord says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the judgment that they had seen happen to Israel was now coming to Judah, was now coming home to God's city, as they would have thought of it. God was calling for Judah's punishment because she'd already shown herself to be sinful. The Lord is the righteous one. His righteous judgment against them was good and right. They deserved what was coming to them. But we find a glimmer of hope. In chapter 2, verse 3, we read, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So the Lord doesn't say that he will not punish their sin, But he does say if they repent, they may be hidden on the day of anger of the Lord. And so we know from the biblical record uh, that the kingdom of Judah does fall to the Babylonians and that Jerusalem was destroyed shortly after Josiah's death. What we find now in the book, the passage that we're looking at, in this short book, are really some of the most awesome and horrific descriptions of the wrath of God and his righteous judgment almost of anywhere in Scripture. The totality of the cosmos uh, are are to be consumed in his burning anger. But yet, in the passage that we're considering for this morning, we also find 
one of the most moving descriptions of the love of God for his people. That's what we're looking at this morning. But I wanted to put it in the context so that we would see just how glorious these words are. I think the beauty of these verses is only highlighted by the contrast to the rest of the book. So the main theme that we see in our passage this morning is that the Lord is the righteous ruler who brings salvation to his people. The Lord is the righteous ruler uh, who brings salvation to his people. And it is because of the salvation of the Lord that he brings to his people that we are called to rejoice in the Lord. And that's the first few verses that we'll look at is uh, that we're called to rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is the righteous ruler who brings salvation to his people, and so we rejoice in the Lord. And uh, as the righteous ruler, the Lord promises that he will preserve a humble and faithful remnant that he will protect. Well, that's good news. That's good news because judgment is coming, according to the prophet, but he will hold out salvation. God's faithful people will survive the destruction of God's wrath, but it's more than just escaping God's wrath. Because as we'll see in our text, we are, we're more than just saved from wrath. We're brought into the joy of the Lord, into his joy. And this is cause for celebration and not just a, a begrudging uh, lip service of, well, praise the Lord. We're called to, to sing, to shout, and to rejoice and exalt with all of our hearts. And so let's look at verse 14, chapter 3. He says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Why? Because we see in verse 15, it tells us the reason why we should rejoice is that the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. The people had earned God's wrath and they were in the crosshairs of God's judgment But because of his grace, they were freed from that impending judgment. Uh, I'm sorry, that impending punishment. And isn't this a picture of the gospel? God bringing salvation to guilty people, to sinners? That's exactly what it is. If you were in Christ, the Lord has taken away the righteous judgment against you that your sin deserves. Why? Because on the cross... Christ fully drained the cup of God's wrath against sin. It was paid for, but you were protected by it. Christ's life of obedience paid for it all. And so, as we know in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, we look then again at our passage, and the verse continues, we're told that he has cleared away all of your enemies, The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Well, Zephaniah was speaking of a future day. Uh, Judgment was coming, but this word of the Lord came about this king of Israel who would be in their midst. It wasn't a present reality, but it was a cause for rejoicing, knowing that one day it would come. It was a cause for rejoicing because even though difficulty would come, They could trust that God's promises were sure. They knew what they were looking forward to. And he says that the presence of the Lord, the king, would drive away fear, fear of all enemies. 
just as he would drive away evil. The oldest enemy, of course, is the serpent, right? We met him in Genesis chapter 3. And just as uh, God turned back the enemies of Israel, as he accomplished his redemptive work among his people, so too Satan will one day be turned back completely and forever. We know that because Christ's cross made that sure. His work on the cross made that sure. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The king comes to destroy our enemies. That thought of the Lord living uh, among his people as a king, uh, right, was astonishing. They knew what it was to have a king, but they also knew what it was like to have a lot of lousy kings. Uh, Kings who lived in disobedience and were hard on the people. But to have the Lord as the king, that was astonishing. And so he repeats it, the message again in verse 17. He says, the Lord your God is in your midst. As we are looking at the candles of Advent, we're reminded of the words that were read. Matthew 1, 23, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas, the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was born in a lowly manger. This is cause for rejoicing. It says, verse 16 tells us that on that day it shall be said in Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. In other words, don't just be totally overcome. Why? The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one, a mighty warrior who will save. And so we rejoice because the Lord is king. We rejoice that he is a mighty warrior who will save. The picture that Zephaniah is is drawing for us, I think, here is that of a, a fearless, unstoppable warrior who is willing to fight a bloody battle. Strength and might belong supremely to the Lord. There are, there are none who can successfully oppose his power. And so his people can rest in his presence. And at the same time, we see that same fearless, mighty warrior being willing to walk straight into the face of death in order to obtain victory. And is this not what we see in our Savior, Jesus Christ? He was willing to walk face long into death. He was willing to endure shame and the humiliation of the cross in order to save his people. See, more than a baby born in a manger, Jesus is the one who would live humbly, sinless, in obedience all his life, uh, submitting to the Father and die the death of a criminal to take on the sins of his people so that all who would believe in him, all who would receive him, would would gain forgiveness of their sins. And he would, by a free gift of grace, give them his own righteousness 
the gift of eternal life, as well as the, the gift of his spirit, which, which dwells in every believer. Think about that. In, in one sense, right, the spirit, uh, by the spirit's presence in us, the Lord here is in our midst. But one day, one day he will be with his people bodily. Because on that day, on the final day of the Lord, Christ will come back as that conquering king, that conquering warrior king. And his presence will drive away all fear, all fear of evil, all fear of lack. Think about a, a young child who wakes up in, from a nightmare, right? Screaming, crying. And what does it take? It takes the strong, loving presence of a parent coming into the room to quiet those fears of the child. I mean, have you ever experienced that, kids? Have you ever had a bad dream or a scary thought? And when, as soon as mom and dad came in, you felt a lot better. You felt safe. You knew that things were going to be okay. You might wake up afraid, but the presence of your parent made things feel safe again. So just imagine, all of us, how much greater it will be when we are fully in the presence of our Savior. Certainly at that point, he will drive away every fear. Well, the final few lines of verse 17, we see yet another tender aspect of our Lord and the relationship that he has with his people. The text says that he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Think of the Lord finding delight, finding joy, right? It's significant enough that the, that, uh, that the God of all creation would find delight in his own creation. But how much more astounding that the Holy One should experience such joy over sinners. It's incomprehensible. Isaiah used similar language that we find here in Isaiah 62.5 when he says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So think about it. The Lord rejoicing over you with gladness, quieting you by his love, and exalting over you with loud singing. This is a relationship uh, that's pictured here is between that of a bridegroom and his bride. And the image is... Like I said, it's stunning. So I want to ask you, do you, do you see Christ this way? Do you, do you picture if, if somehow Christ were to walk in the room, that's how he would see you? Rescuing you out of all of your sin, out of all your rebellion against him, knowing all of your sins and having paid for them themselves. The same Savior who drives away all your enemies. He doesn't find disgust in you. He's not repulsed by you, but he is delighting over you, rejoicing over you, quieting every fear, rejoicing with gladness and song. This is the same kind of delight that we see uh, in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. And when that prodigal son comes home, the father rejoices. It's the same type of language that's used in Luke 15 when Jesus says that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
And where he says also in Luke 15 that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Our God delights in sinners, in saving sinners. He sings over his people. And the deep inner joy expressed by God's love for his people, well, it's the same joy that he has called us to. Right? It's the same joy that he calls his people to in verse 14. He uses the same language. So that which he calls us to do, to rejoice in him, he rejoices in the same way over us. It's the same language. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. God exalts over his people with loud singing. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord rejoices over his people with gladness. It's not quite as apparent in English, but it's the same words in the original manuscripts. He calls for us to join with him in his delight. He doesn't just save us from his wrath, but he brings us into his joy and delight. And so as believers, we have such reason, not not merely being saved from wrath, but, but such reason for delight and joy because we enter in the joy of our Savior. This is why we rejoice at Christmas. right? Because the Lord is the righteous ruler who brings salvation to his people and he calls us to rejoice. And he also calls us to place our hope in the Lord. And that's where we'll look in these last verses, to hope in the Lord. In these last three verses, the Lord himself speaks and he brings this vision of a future joy to the present situation of his people. The reality is that they will still need to go through all of the horror and grief of the Babylonian invasion, the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. But he wants them to know that he will one day prevail over their enemies in power. One of the ways that the conquering kingdoms would subdue their enemies is that they would take them from their homeland and they would scatter them throughout the kingdom. They would separate them. They would lose, the, peop- the idea was that they, the people would lose their sense of home, their sense of community, their sense of loyalty, their sense of place as they were scattered throughout the kingdom. And it would make, them more, make it much more difficult for them to revolt. Also, the hope was that they would eventually just settle in, that they would no longer see themselves as Israelites or, or from the kingdom of Judah, but they would just become part of the Babylonian Empire. And so they were scattered. But here, before this even happens, the Lord gives them these words of promise because he wants to give them hope in the darkest days and help them to pre- and to help preserve their faith through the difficulties that will lie ahead of them. He wants them to know that he will do this. And so as we look at this, these next verses, notice how many times the Lord says, I will. The first word promised, uh, promised hope that the Lord speaks to his people who will be scattered is, I will gather, I will gather you. Look at verse 18. He says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all of your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise. Now, your version, if you're not reading from the ESV, you might notice that the words are different. And it's interesting, uh, as I was studying this passage and realizing 
boy, I've not studied Zephaniah like this before. All of these commentaries were different. And the reason is because these verses are difficult to translate. That's the one thing they agreed on. It's hard to translate these verses. And so you may notice, even in your different, if you have a different Bible translation, that these words read differently. But what is clear in all of the translations is that the Lord is bringing his people back together. Though they be scattered, he will bring them back together. As the conquering warrior king, he pursues those who attack his children and he destroys them. He takes those who have been broken and restores them to health. He takes those who have been shamed and restores their dignity. And he gathers up all his people, seeking out even the weakest, those who might otherwise to some seem to be useless or not worth saving. He seeks those out and he saves them. He seeks the ones who are in the greatest need of rescue. That's reason for hope. That's reason for hope for all of God's faithful people to know that no one will be left behind. He will gather all of them together. But perhaps I think the greatest hope that the Lord spells out in these verses is that he will gather his people in, meaning he will, he will gather them to himself. He will bring them home. Look at verse 20. He says, at that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before their eyes, says the Lord. These words of hope are meant to remind God's people that no matter what their present circumstances are, they do not reflect, not fully, what will one day be. Even the blessings that we experience in this lifetime are but a pale pale shadow of the blessings that we will one day experience when we are with the Lord. God has promised that his people, a savior who would overcome the power of sin and crush the head of the serpent. God had promised uh, his people that he would, uh, he would make them a, a mighty nation. God had promised his people an everlasting king. And so all of these po promises find their fulfillment in Christ. And we see the evidence even now. Jesus, had, Jesus is the promised Savior who's overcome the power of sin and death and offers eternal life to all who believe. Right In Christ, the Lord is making a mighty nation who by faith are from every tongue, tribe, nation. Jesus Christ is the everlasting King who is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. But the hope but there's still more hope, right? The, the, the reason for the hope that the people of Zephaniah's time had and what we have now is that there is an even greater day coming. The realization uh, of the new Jerusalem, just as less read for us, Revelation 21, 1 through 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall be there neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The ultimate promise and the ultimate fulfillment that we see of these verses is what our hope is. It is, the, it is what we long for and what we anticipate as God's people, the day when we will be with him forever, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I began by telling you about our family tradition of decorating the Christmas tree and, and how surprising it is, how things can go wrong and how frustrating it can be and how people can begin to sulk. And that seems pretty petty, doesn't it? Compared to the exile that was faced by these people who received the word from Zephaniah. We're not under the threat of exile but we are under the constant danger of losing our joy. As God's people, we need to keep the glories of God before our eyes and not allow the circumstances of our day snuff out the hope and destroy our hope in him. And so this Advent, my hope is that we will keep the glory of Christ before us that will guard our hearts against bitterness and pettiness, against competitiveness, against unmet expectations that are perhaps the wrong expectations. That we will fortify our hope, not in the traditions or the expectations of a perfect Christmas, but in the joy of our heavenly king. A king who welcomes us in and who rejoices and sings over us. Praise be to God, this is the Savior that we worship, and this is the source of our hope. Let us pray together. Father, I thank you that you are the Lord who is righteous, and that although we would deserve the penalty of, that our sin deserves, the penalty of death, yet you bring salvation to your people. And so, Father, as we... As we continue our worship service as we move out from here and we uh, begin to celebrate Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, I pray that you would keep the glorious hopes and promises that you have made before our eyes. That you would not allow uh, the small irritants of the world to drown out our joy. That you would protect us from the petty disagreements that would drown out our joy. That you would remind us, Father, there is a sure and certain hope waiting for all who trust in you. Father, I pray that that would be the source of our joy and that Jesus Christ would be the source of our worship and that our lives would be a reflection of that and that you would give us true and abiding joy and that we would proclaim it to those who are around us to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask in his precious name, amen.